If you have a Bible, take it out, find the book of Jonah. In the Protestant tradition of Scripture, we group at the end of our Old Testament, we group the last 12 books together, and we call them minor prophets. Minor, not because they're not important or because they were somehow insignificant, but minor just because the books are short. They're not very long. So we call them the minor prophets. In the Jewish tradition, these 12 books are grouped together, the exact same content, the exact same books grouped together and put into one book called the Book of the Twelve, or sometimes just called the Twelve. And we're talking in this sermon series about each one of the the minor prophets, each one of these twelve, one Sunday for each book, and this morning we've come to the book of Jonah. However you want to combine them, however you want to divide them, Jonah is the best known of all the minor prophets. He's the most famous of all the minor prophets. And if you've ever just sat down with your Bible to read the minor prophets, you know why Jonah is the most popular. It's because the book of Jonah is a story. When you read many of the other minor prophets, you get little glimpses of story, but a lot of what you get is sermon or preaching. A lot of what you get is oracle, sort of the prophet decrying this nation and God's going to come in judgment against them. A lot of what you get is sort of prophecy about what's coming in the future or what's right around the corner. And some of the stuff in the minor prophets, we haven't even got to the challenging ones yet. Some of the stuff in the minor prophets is really hard to sort through and make sense of. Jonah is a story, and we all like stories, and so it's by far the most popular of the minor prophets. It fits into a larger story, and that's the story of Scripture. And I just want to try to set it in the story of Israel's history here. Jonah preached before the Assyrian exile of Israel in 722 B.C. And so we'll just put a a timeline up. We've looked at this every week. The unified kingdom of Israel. That's the nation of Israel as it's established first under Saul, then under David, then under David's son Solomon. The unified kingdom. All the 12 tribes were together. But after Solomon died, the kingdom split in two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and there was the southern kingdom of Judah, and we've called that the divided kingdom. Those two kingdoms went on. Sometimes they were friends. Sometimes they fought. Sometimes they just tolerated each other. The kings in the north were all of them wicked. The kings in the south were sort of a mixed bag. Some of them were good. Some of them were wicked, but even the good ones weren't all that great. And eventually, the Assyrian Empire in 722 marched against the northern kingdom of Israel conquered Samaria, took those people into exile. You wind the tape forward just a little bit further. The Babylonian Empire came, marched against the southern kingdom of Judah, conquered Jerusalem, and took those people into exile as well. We take the book of Jonah and we squeeze it right here in the middle, right? The kingdom has already been divided. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the Assyrians are beginning to sort of ramp up their power, They're beginning to grow as a world-dominant power. And Israel knows about it. They know Assyria is off to the east. They know that they're a powerful nation and they're growing more powerful. But they haven't come and conquered Israel yet. And that's where we squeeze in the book of Jonah, right during the reign of Jeroboam II. If you wanted to summarize Jonah in one sentence, here's my best attempt to summarize Jonah. It's a book about sin and salvation. It's a book about sin and salvation. The emphasis on the book 
as you read through it, as far as what gets the most space on the page is sin. Whether that's the sin of the Ninevites or the sin of Jonah the prophet. The book exposes the ugliness and the heinousness of sin. And it talks about God's righteous anger against sin. But as you step back and see the book as a whole, as a literary unit, as what the the prophet is trying to do in telling this story, you also realize it's a story about salvation. And we'll come back to that idea as we wrap up in a minute. What do we know about Jonah? We don't know a whole lot. Here's one of the things we know. He was the son of Amittai. You say, what do we know about Amittai? Absolutely nothing. But we know that it was Jonah's dad. And they lived in Gath Heifer. Now, some of you are saying, oh, yeah, I read about Gath Heifer this week, or I I know where that's at on a map. And most of you are saying, never heard of it in my life. So I'll just show you a map. This is the same map. The one on the right is just blown up a little bit bigger so you can see. You've got the Mediterranean Sea on the left. You've got Judah in the blue down south. You've got Israel in the purple up north. And that star is right about where Gath Heifer is. Gath Heifer is just west of the Sea of Galilee, sometimes called the Sea of Kinnerath. That's Gath Heifer. It's such a small little community on most maps of ancient Israel, it doesn't even get a dot. But that's where it's located, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Jonah was a contemporary of several other prophets. He wasn't the only prophet, major or minor, speaking when God called him to speak. And we would throw Isaiah and Amos and Hosea, and we would say all of these guys are preaching and writing about the same time period during the reign of Jeroboam II. Jonah appears, we're just sort of trying to piece things together as best we can, he appears to have been a zealous patriot, somebody who loved his nation very, very, very much. Someone who maybe loved his nation and his people so much that it maybe moved him to be a little bit hateful or we could even maybe say racist towards other nations. And the scripture I'm going to put on the screen is 2 Kings 14.25. This is what it says in 2 Kings 14.25. Jeroboam II, he's the wicked king of Israel. Jeroboam II restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. So he expands the border, and what he does in expanding the border is what God told him to do, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke. You say, how did this word come to Jeroboam II? Well, God spoke it by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. There's two places in the Old Testament you read about Jonah. One is the book of Jonah, and one is 2 Kings 14.25. And you don't need to know all the place names involved here. Here's what you need to understand. The king of Israel was Jeroboam II. He was rotten. I mean, he was bad. He was a wicked, wicked man. And God sent other prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, to speak to Jeroboam II and to say to him, you better repent or God's judgment's going to fall on the nation. In the midst of all those prophets coming with the message of repentance, God sends Jonah. Lives in Israel, Gath Hefer. He sends him to the king of his nation. And the word of the Lord from Jonah to the king is, hey, that land that we lost in battle, get the, get the army ready, get the troops out, go fight and take it back. 
restore the border to where it used to be. All these other prophets are saying to Jeroboam, you're wicked, God is angry with you, you'd better repent. Here comes Jonah, and Jonah's message from God is not, you're wicked and you need to repent. Jonah's message to the king is, let's get our land back. Yes, you're a wicked king. Yes, God's angry with you. But he's going to use you in this moment to restore this border. Here's what's interesting. When God sent Jonah to tell his own wicked king to go out and fight and expand the border of Israel, there's absolutely no record of Jonah running. Jonah didn't say, I don't want to speak for you. I don't want to be a prophet. Jonah dutifully went to the king and delivered that message. We're reading between the lines, but I think it's because he loved his nation. He wanted to see prosperity in his nation. He wanted to see the borders restored to what he thought was rightfully their land. And when God sent him to his own king, who was a wicked man, Jonah went and he delivered this message. And he said, the word of the Lord to you is go fight and take this land back for Israel. And Jonah was all about that message. Later, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the word of the Lord was not, I want you to deliver a message that is going to help Israel. The word that came to Jonah is, I'm sending you to Nineveh. And that's when all of the events are triggered that you think of when you think about the book of Jonah. Jonah literally tries to run from the presence of the Lord. Just think about this. God sends him to Jeroboam II. Get the land back, and Jonah says, I'm in. I'll take the message. God says to Jonah, I have another message, this time for you to go to Assyria. And Jonah says, I'm out of here. Look what we read in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish away. Tells you this for the second time, what he was trying to do. Away from the presence of the Lord. Now I'm visual, so I I like to see these things where I can sort of picture what's happening. Let's go back to our last map. The star up in the north, that's where Jonah lives, right? Jonah, the son of Amittai, they live up in Gath Heifer, this this little rural village just west of, of the Sea of Galilee. Down on the left, I've circled the city of Joppa. It's a port city. It's a coastal city. And the first thing we read is that he goes from his home in Gath Heifer down to Joppa. Look at the next map. I've got to really expand it out. God says, I want you to go 550 miles northeast to Nineveh. And Jonah says, hmm, I think I'll go 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. Literally, I'm going to the edge of the known world. What is the farthest place that I can go away from Nineveh? Well... That would be Tarshish. I'll take a one-way ticket to Tarshish. Literally running away from the presence of the Lord. And it's funny because we use this as a figure of speech sometimes. Maybe we talk about our 
our kids who have, have gone and wandered from the Lord or somebody that you grew up with who's no longer attending church, and we use this figure of speech like they're running from the Lord. We don't really mean they're trying to run away from the Lord. We just mean they're not living their life in a way that honors God. Jonah takes it to a whole new level, and he literally tries to run away from God's presence. If this is God's nation, Israel, if this is where he set his people up, I want to get as far away from here as I can, and he tries to to run away from the presence of the Lord. The question is why? Why did he do it? You read children's Bibles, you find all sorts of answers filled in. You read adult Bible studies, you find all, all sorts of answers filled in to explain why he tried to run away. But sometimes we just need to listen to the text itself, and we're going to come back to the story, but let's jump ahead to the end, because at the end of the story, Jonah tells us why. Look what he says in Jonah 4, verse 1 and 2. He's already gone. He's preached. The people repented, and we'll come back to that. I just want you to see the why. Jonah 4.1. God had mercy on the people. He didn't destroy them. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord. You always need to think, if I'm angry, I better be careful what I'm about to say to God. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord. Verse 2, he said this, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Like, English paraphrase, I told you this was going to happen. I told you this way back. Isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah knew as soon as the word of the Lord came to him and he said, go speak out, cry out against Nineveh. Jonah knew the God that's sending me is compassionate and he's abounding in love and he's slow to anger, he's patient with people. And there's a very good chance that if I go preach to them and tell them that judgment is coming, that God will end up having mercy on them. And I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to go publicly put my career or my reputation as a prophet on the line and say that God's going to judge them if I know there's a pretty good chance he might be merciful. I don't want anything to do with that mission. And mixed up in that is probably the idea of Jonah saying, I don't want anything good to happen to Nineveh the capital of Assyria, right? Jonah saw it as a zero-sum game. The stronger Assyria gets, the weaker Israel gets. And if I go and I say something to these people on behalf of the Lord, it may end up helping them. I don't want to help those people. I don't like those people. They don't speak the same language as me. The tint of their skin is a little bit different. Their culture is abominable to me. I don't want to help those people in any way, shape, or form. So I'm heading on a boat, and I'm going as far away from the presence of the Lord as I can. And he runs. Look in your Bible at chapter 1, verse 4. Jonah's running away, and it says, The Lord hurls. Literally, he just picks it up in his hand is the idea, and he throws it. He hurls a great wind, a great storm on the sea. Verse 5 
says the sailors who are taking Jonah across the Mediterranean, those sailors are afraid. And then verse 10, Jonah ups the ante, or the author of this book ups the ante and says not only were they afraid, they were exceedingly afraid. Why? They found out he was running from the Lord. And the way you piece it all together, this is kind of what it sounds like. When Jonah got on the boat and these guys say, hey, why are you going to Tarshish? Jonah said, well, I'm running away from my God. They knew he was running away. But when the storm comes and their lives are on the line and they wake Jonah up who's sleeping and they say to him, what in the world is going on? Jonah says, I'm running from the Lord, all caps, I'm running from Yahweh. And these men were exceedingly afraid. Verse 17, the very end of chapter 1. They've thrown Jonah overboard. The sea has calmed. It says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There's a prayer in chapter 2 while Jonah's in the fish. And we'll come back to the heart of that prayer in a minute. I'd just like you to look at at chapter 3. Jonah 3, 1 and 2. There's a reset for Jonah. There's a second chance for the prophet. And it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. We're going to try this again. Saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Pay attention to what God says to him. Go to Nineveh, And you will say what I tell you to say. You're not going west. You're going to Nineveh. You're going to Assyria. And you're going to say exactly what I tell you to say. Just a few pieces of history for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing. We know where the ruins of Nineveh are today. In fact, I'll show you a map. This is Iraq. Syria's on the left. Iran's on the right. And Iraq's this this lighter colored nation in the middle. And the outline here is sort of the outline of ancient uh, Assyria. And you can see Nineveh is just sitting right outside the ruins of Mosul. And so if you've paid attention to the news over the last several years as we fought wars in this part of the world, you've heard about the city of Mosul. The city of Nineveh, the ruins of Nineveh, are just right outside of Mosul in Iraq. Interesting, there's a mosque. Maybe I should say there was a mosque. Here's a picture of it. It's right part of the ruins in Nineveh. It's much, much older than the story that we're reading. It's a Muslim mosque, a Muslim place of worship. And the name of this mosque was Nebi Yunus, the tomb of Jonah. And the Muslim peoples believe that Jonah was a prophet. They sort of change some of the things that we believe about the scriptures, but they see Jonah as a prophet, and they believe that he was buried in this place, which is interesting. That there's ancient tradition, whether you want to take it or leave it, that Jonah was in this place. In the summer of 2014, ISIS bombed the whole area and destroyed almost all of the ruins. All of these ancient sites, Muslim and Jewish, just destroyed and most of it just left as rubble. The capital of this world power Assyria was Nineveh. And here's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like historical descriptions of the city are really amazing. 
You go back in time and you think about what this city had. They had this large moat all around the city. They had a massive double wall that went all through the edge of the city. And the wall was so big, they used to have chariot races around the edge of the city on the top of the wall. There was a library in the city. There were roads. There were aqueducts. There were parks. There were dams. There was gardens. The whole city was about three times the size of the UTPB campus. So if you can just picture that right down the road, how big that campus is, just put three of them side by side, and that's about the size of this ancient city of Nineveh. Sennacherib, one of the Assyrian empires, had a palace there. Think about this, just how opulent the city was. The city is about three square miles big, okay? In his palace in Nineveh, he had two square miles of carved stone took all the stone carvings that he had up on the walls and around and the floor for decoration, and you laid them out side by side, two square miles of carved stone. And you can see some of them that many, many years earlier were taken from this site, and you can visit them in a museum. And most of them are scenes of him in battle, taking people into captivity and destroying other nations. Just an amazing, amazing city. Also interesting, you can look this up and see a few pictures if you want. There's ancient tradition and there's evidence that the people in this city worshipped a god called Dagon. D-A-G-A-N. Dagon. It was one of their idols. They believed that Dagon was half fish, half man. And they believed that from time to time, Dagon, this deity, lived out in the sea, would send messengers to them from the sea. And in the providence of God, working even against Jonah's own sinful rebellion, how does God choose to send Jonah? Of all the ways that he could have sent him, he sends him in the fish. And the fish spits him out on the beach from the sea. And here comes Jonah walking into town, and these people feel like this is a message that we ought to listen to. Look what we read in the book of Jonah. Look at the end of chapter 3. Look at verse 10. Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, they repented. It doesn't necessarily mean that they abandoned Dagon and all their idols and started worshiping Yahweh. It just meant they cleaned up their act a little bit. They quit acting so wickedly for a season. And when God saw it, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he didn't do it. Jonah had gone to these people and he had preached a message that God was going to destroy them. Look what Jonah said. If you you back up to chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Here's what he preached. This was his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Back up in chapter 3, God says, you speak exactly what I tell you to speak. And when he goes, what he says is, in 40 days, God's going to blow the whole thing up. He didn't call for a revival. He didn't start a, a, a tent revival or a camp meeting. 
He didn't set up a, a shop and open a Jewish synagogue or, or his own version of the Jewish temple. He just walked into the town and he said, in 40 days, God's going to kill you all. He's going to level this whole city, this amazing city. The capital of your nation is going to be destroyed. And you come to the end of the chapter and the people on some level listened. They believed this messenger from the sea. They didn't turn to Yahweh, but they did turn from their evil ways. And it says in Jonah 3.10, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Look, it was bad when you saw Jonah running away from God. That's bad. What we're about to read in chapter 4, verse 1 is worse. Look what happens. God relents, Jonah 4.1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased him? It displeased him that God did not kill these people. He was angry, the text says, because God did not flatten this city. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Is this not what I told you when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were gracious. He's angry at God for being gracious. I knew this about you. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Verse 3, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Now you've got Jonah wishing that God would kill him. Think about what Jonah knows about God's power at this point in the story. He knows that God can hurl winds against the sea. He knows that God can calm the sea. He knows that God can control great fish and when they vomit and where they vomit. And he says to this God, just kill me now. I would rather be dead than wrong. I've been walking around this city for 40 days telling people that you were going to blow them up. I look like a fool. Just kill me. I'd rather be dead than help the Assyrians. You expect me to go back to Israel and be the prophet who helped our, our arch rivals? who led these people to repentance when you were on the verge of blowing them up, I can't go back and be that guy. Just kill me. And he asked that God would kill him. And then what's weird and what's wicked and evil, it just gets bizarre at the end of the book. You can read the end. At the end of the book, just picture the last time you went to Walmart and you saw a kid throwing a temper tantrum. Like full out screaming on the floor, banging, knocking stuff off the shelves. That's Jonah at the end of the book. And there was a little vine that God caused up to grow, and he liked the vine for its shade. And then God sent the sun, and the sun killed the vine. And then Jonah has a complete meltdown. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? The meltdown isn't because of anything important. It's just something silly and trivial, and you just want to say, why are you having this meltdown? And that's Jonah at the end of the book. He's angry. He's throwing a temper tantrum. He's shaking his fist at God. He's feeling sorry for himself, and he's actually sitting outside of Nineveh. He found himself a nice vantage point after God relented so that he could watch this city, hoping against hope that God might just level the whole thing. I'm just going to sit here until you blow it up. And in the meantime, I'm going to throw a temper tantrum with this vine. It's one of the strangest endings. In fact, I would say it's the strangest ending to any book in the Bible. You say, well, what came after the, temp the temper tantrum? Nothing. That's the end. God gives him a little lecture at the end, 
But there's no like turn the corner for Jonah, clean yourself up, tell God you're sorry, apologize, do the right thing. It just ends. And you're left wondering, and I'm left wondering, did the light bulb ever go off for Jonah? Did he ever realize how big of a jerk he was? I would suggest to you that at some point he did. There's only one person that could have told this story, and that is who? Jonah. He knew his own heart and his own motivations of why he ran away. He knew the story of the the sailors on the ship and the ocean and the fish and all the stuff. He knew the story about the plant. Nobody was with him when that happened outside the city. He's the one who knew this story. Let me ask you this. What kind of person tells a story where they are the villain? You and I don't do that very often. We like to tell stories where we're the hero, where we look good, where we come through. Jonah's told a story where he looks embarrassingly pathetic, incredibly childish. The only kind of person I would suggest to you who tells that kind of story is somebody who's had the light bulb go off and has realized, I'm a rotten person. And you all need to learn from my bad example. And I think at some point, the Bible doesn't tell us when, I don't have any speculation about it, but at some point the light bulb went off and Jonah said, you know what, I don't want anyone else to be as dumb as me or as foolish as me or as wicked as me. So I'm going to write this stuff down. I'm going to write it all down. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm just going to tell it like it is. I look like the, the villain in this story. I'm the anti-hero. And I'm going to tell it to these people so that they can learn something about what God wants from his, from his people. It brings us to a question. What was Jonah's message to Nineveh? The message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The message wasn't repent. The message wasn't, you better knock it off or God's going to get you. He just said, 40 days and God's going to blow you up. Outside of Nineveh, Jonah wrote this story not for the Assyrians, but for his people, for the Hebrews. And the question is, why did he write it? What is his message to his own people? What is his message to Israel? Let's just go through a few ideas. Number one, sin makes you do ridiculous things. It makes you do ridiculous things, like try to run away from God, like throw a temper tantrum about a vine, like blaming God for everything that has happened. I'll be honest with you. When you read the story of Jonah, his foibles and his failures and his faults are told with such transparency that it's easy for us to laugh at this story. It's easy for you and I to read it and say, Jonah, what a goober. What is wrong with this guy? How dense do you have to be to think that you can run away from the presence of the Lord? If you know anything about God, you know that you can't get away from Him. What are you thinking? Thinking that you could go to the other side of the Mediterranean and somehow God wouldn't see you there or He wouldn't be there. We would never think that way, would we? Students would never go to school and act differently than they do at church or at home, would they? Nervous laughter from the teachers. Maybe nervous laughter from the parents. 
I realize that when that sort of thing happens, that those students are not trying to run away from God's presence. But is it really all that different to think that I can be one way here and somehow God doesn't see or care as much as long as I go to this geographical location, 4020 East University, and I do all the right stuff, then I can go anywhere else I want and I can be a completely different person. I can escape God's presence. Adults would never do that, would we? No. We never go to work and talk differently than we do in this building, would we? We never go to work and treat people differently than we treat people here, would we? As if we really believe that in this geographic location, the rules are different than in this geographic location. Or in this geographic location, God is less present than he is over here. We're not all that different. And one of the lessons you take away from Jonah is not just to laugh at him, but to say, look, when sin takes hold of your heart, you're going to end up doing stupid things, like trying to run away from God. I remember a speaker when I was in high school at a youth camp said it this way. I looked this up, and I found it attributed to about 20 different people this week, so you pick your source. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. You let sin take hold of your heart, you will become the laughing stock. You'll be no different than Jonah trying to run away from the presence of the Lord by getting on a boat and going 2,500 miles to the west. Number two, this goes with number one, you can't outrun God. You can't outrun God. It's foolish to think that God can see us in one place and not in the other or that we're accountable to him here but we're not there. But that's the exact same game we play in our lives. You can't outrun him. You can't get away from him. He sees what you do here. He sees what you do in the oil patch. He sees what you do at work. He sees what you do at school. He sees how you act at home. He sees all of it. You can't get away from him. Jonah couldn't get away from him. I can't get away from him. You can't get away from him. Number three. Jonah wanted people to know that God is compassionate. He's compassionate. And Jonah has set this thing up on two levels. One is the compassion he has on the Ninevites. Okay, let's just talk about that. Jonah goes into town and he says, 40 days and God's going to blow it up. That's it. The people don't turn to Yahweh, but they repent. They, they sort of do the, the right thing outwardly. They put on the sackcloth and the ashes from the king to the lowest. And God says, you know what? I'm going to relent. Can I tell you something fascinating? Eventually, God brought judgment on the Ninevites. But you can piece it together in the Old Testament, and you can piece it together from history. After Jonah preached in Nineveh and the people repented, This little shallow, temporary repentance. God gave them another 100 years before he sent judgment. Eventually, we're going to come to a minor prophet named Nahum. And Nahum is 100 years in front of Jonah. And Nahum's going to say, God has brought judgment on the Assyrians. But this one little sort of feeble attempt at doing the right thing, God gave these people 100 more years. A hundred more years to get their act together, to trust in him, to put away Dagon and all the other idols. One hundred years. He's compassionate, just like Jonah knew he was. 
So you see God's compassion towards the Ninevites, but can I also just suggest to you that you see God's compassion to Jonah? God didn't need Jonah for any of this. If Jonah didn't want to be a part of it, God could have found somebody else to use. He tries to run away from God. He lectures God about how foolish it is that he's not destroying these people. He's angry with God. He throws a temper tantrum in the presence of the Lord, this completely embarrassing and ugly. And all the way through it, God is compassionate. He could have just been done with Jonah in a moment. But he's not only compassionate to the Ninevites, he's compassionate to Jonah. He is a God of compassion. Number four, we chase little g gods like self and country. I think this is what's going on in Jonah's life on a heart level. One is the idol of self, the little g god of self. He wants to be right more than he wants the Ninevites to live. He wants what he said was going to happen to actually happen more than he wants God to have mercy on these people. He cares about his own reputation. He cares about his own career. He cares about how he looks in the sight of these people. He knows. You know how people are. When the 40 days came up and nothing happened, the Ninevites went right back to their sin. And they said, that guy was a false prophet. He was a liar. It didn't happen. They laughed at Jonah. He wanted self to be most important in second country. He didn't want anything good to happen to Assyria. He didn't care about those people. He wasn't concerned that God would have compassion to them. The book ends with God pointing out to Jonah, you're more concerned about a plant than a city full of people. Sin has taken your sensibility and turned it on its head. All your priorities are out of whack. You don't know up from down, back from forward. You're confused, Jonah. But he's chasing these little g-gods. Lastly, number five, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is really Jonah's only good moment in the whole book. He's in the fish, he's praying, and at the end of his prayer, he says this, Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. He knew that. He knew as he was sinking down in the ocean, the only way I make it out of this is if the Lord saves me. And he knew, sitting in the belly of the fish, the only way I make it out of this is if the Lord saves me. And he eventually learned the only way the Ninevites live is if God saves them. It's not in my power. It's not in their power. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Listen, you don't save yourself. I can't save you. Emmanuel Baptist Church cannot save you. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. You've got to come to this point of humility, just like Jonah did. He had a moment where he got it. The light bulb came on. And I know he went right back to old Jonah as soon as he got spit out of the fish. But in this moment, he gets it, and he gets it right, and he understands salvation belongs to the Lord. If God's going to save me, he's going to have to do it. I can't do it myself. We'll end with this question. How do we apply Jonah's message? How do we apply it? We could go through all those five and we could think through application again. We've already done that. I just want to suggest one more thought to you, and the thought is this. Jonah is pointing us forward to Jesus. If you can read the book of Jonah and it doesn't make you think about Jesus and the gospel and what happens in the New Testament, you've missed the whole point of Jonah. 
want you to listen to a, a verse. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Matthew chapter 12. Let's go to the next one. There it is. Matthew 12, 41. It says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. This is Jesus speaking. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus, out of his own mouth, said, something greater than Jonah has been sent to you. And you better listen, and you better pay attention. I'd just like you to think about the the parallels between the two. Jonah was sent on a mission from God and tried his best to get out of it. Jesus is sent on a mission by the Father and he willingly came to fulfill the mission. Not begrudgingly, willingly. Jonah is in the ocean thrown into this storm. And when he's thrown into the sea, thrown into the storm, then everything becomes calm. What the New Testament says is that Jesus is thrown into the storm of God's wrath on the cross, far greater than anything on the Mediterranean. And it's only when Jesus is thrown into God's wrath that things become calm. Jesus himself makes the parallel elsewhere that Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish and the Son of Man is going to spend three days in the belly of the earth. He's saying to you, there's parallels between these stories. There's things that are happening over and over again. As God works redemption for his people, you see these patterns. And and Jonah was in the fish, and the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth. Jonah, when he's in the fish, prays, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Jesus is born And they call his name Jesus, which means salvation is from Yahweh. You read the book of Jonah, you realize what we need is not Jonah. He's not the hero of the story. He's the problem. We're the problem. We're not all that unlike Jonah. I told you, this is a book about sin and salvation. When you read about the sin of the Ninevites, maybe it makes you think about the sin in your own life. But if you just say, no, the Ninevites were really bad, I'm not like that, maybe you can see yourselves in Jonah's shoes. Somebody who's religious. Somebody who goes to the right place on the day of worship. Somebody who could answer all the, all the Bible questions and all the theological questions. Somebody who knows that God is compassionate. They know it intellectually, but they don't love it in their heart. When you look at Jonah, you realize sin takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes it takes the form of outward wickedness and rebellion like Nineveh. And sometimes it looks very religious. In either case, it's ugly. And it separates you from God. And the book of Jonah is a book saying, what we need is not another reluctant prophet to come. We need God himself to come. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and if we are ever going to be saved, God himself has got to come and save us. That's what Jonah is pointing you forward to, to Jesus who came to bridge this gulf between the holy God and sinful people by throwing himself into the midst of the storm, by giving his own life to bring calm between our relationship with the Father.